everyone. Uh, how about we pray uh, to get started here? Uh, Lord God and Heavenly Father, uh, I want to thank you for this opportunity uh, to come and fellowship with these uh, beloved brothers and sisters uh, over here, Lord. Um, God, I pray that you would uh, work through me as, uh, as has been prayed already, uh, that you would uh, enable me to uh, speak your words, Lord, uh, not my own, uh, and that I would uh, speak with your love, Lord, um, and that uh, you would work in the hearts of each person here, Lord, and that uh, everyone here who hears the word would not, uh, as it were, look in the mirror uh, and immediately forget what they look like, but uh, take, take your word and apply it and uh, use it in their everyday lives. Uh, God, I pray this in your name. Amen. <clears throat> All right. There's a lot of temptations in my life that I've failed. I, I know that's probably not the best thing you want to hear when uh, someone gets up to preach. Um, uh, and I've just broken all the rules in preaching, but uh, I'm going to come right out and say that, that there is a lot of um, situations in my life that I've come to uh, and taken the sinful way out made the sinful choice. But one in particular sticks in my mind, and I doubt I'll ever forget it. Some years ago, I was facing a temptation I'd faced many times in the past. Uh, and that particular evening, I drew comfort uh, from that famous verse that we just read out, uh, 10 Corinthians, uh, sorry, 1 Corinthians 10.13, uh, God will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. So I reasoned to myself, right, if God won't let me be tempted beyond my ability... Then, this tempt then resisting this temptation should be doable for me. Uh, so therefore I should be able to face this temptation head on and win. So armed with this reasoning and my own self-confidence, I set out to do just that. Uh, and I think it's needless to say at this point that it did not go as well as I'd envisaged. But as predictable as that failure was in hindsight, I was mortified at the outcome at the time. And since I firmly believed and still believe that it wasn't God's promise that was wrong, uh, I realised I must have misunderstood the passage somehow. Uh, so the following morning I decided to go back to the source and study the passage in context and try, and try to work out what it truly meant and where I'd been wrong. And today I'm going to share exactly what I learned then. Uh, Paul giving ten things to remember when you're being tempted. Um, so I, I hope you're already still uh, open to 1 Corinthians 9 and 10, um, which we just read out before. And I think this is a, a very useful passage because in, a, in the midst of a hyper-sinful culture uh, and with the disasters that were going on in their church, the Corinthian church needed all the instruction they could get regarding temptation. Uh, if you know anything about the, the Corinthian church at the time, it was an incredible mess. Uh, and so they wrote a letter to Paul to ask him a few questions uh, about their culture and about uh, how they should make decisions, uh, about marriage, what counts as idolatry, things about communion and about spiritual gifts. Uh, and after uh, a, lengthy, uh, a lengthy period of giving the Corinthian church an earful, uh, Paul answered each question in chapters 7 to 14 of what we now call the First Corinthians. He also gave, uh, he, so he answered those specifically, but he also gave general answers which kind of amounted to saying, 
Uh, the answer will be different for each of you, but here's some uh, general biblical principles that should guide your decision-making. And that's where our passage this morning fits in. In chapter 9, verse 24, Paul gave the Corinthians one general instruction to guide them as they sought to live out what they've learned, uh, what, they'd, what they knew uh, about uh, how to resist temptations. Then he gave them two examples to show them what he meant, uh, followed by three warnings, and then four pieces of encouragement to give them hope. And that is then a sum total of ten things to remember in temptation. And that's the uh, title for this sermon this morning, Ten Things to Remember uh, When You're Being Tempted. Uh, So with that in mind, with that having been said, let's uh, start with chapter 9, verse 24, where Paul gives that one command that I talked about earlier. The command is to live purposefully. Let's read verse 24 again. Do you not know, Paul says, that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Do you guys remember a few months ago Nick Kyrgios's famous Shanghai Masters loss in the tennis? Uh, he uh, put in uh, all his stamina over the preceding few weeks in, in different competitions Uh, And in his exhaustion, Nick Kyrgios gave up and made no effort to win his match. He decided that there was no point in him being there, uh, and so since he didn't have the stamina to reach the prize, so he simply stopped trying. And because of the pointlessness of it, he was criticised mercilessly by the media, his fans, the tennis community in general, and the tennis governing body, all all of whom uh, gave him... Uh, a terrible beating, Uh, and the tennis body gave him a suspension measured in months. The message, then, is clear. If you're not playing to win the prize, don't play at all. Uh, Paul's Paul's image here instead is of a race, uh, but the principle is still the same, and it translates directly into the Christian life. Living the Christian life is like running a long-distance race. It takes effort and focus, uh, and and it also has a prize, which is eternal life uh, and the perfect body in which we will live uh, that eternal life. And in the same way, you need to, quote, run the Christian life purposefully, that is, with the aim of winning that prize. But what does that have to do with temptation? Well... In, attempt, in, a, in any circumstance, uh, you need to do things that will get you closer to the prize and avoid things that will prevent you from getting there. Uh, yeah, avoid things that will prevent you. Uh, and since sin will slow your spiritual growth, it means that running to win the prize uh, will equate to resisting temptation to avoiding sin. But don't get me wrong here, Paul's not saying that the best Christians will get the prize. Uh, in Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 to 14, he said, Not that I have already obtained this or, and or, uh, sorry, or am already perfect, because Christ Jesus has made... But I press on to make it my own, sorry, because Christ Jesus had made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but, I, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and striving forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Uh, And then he calls his readers to do the same. 
in the following verses. So clearly the prize is not won by beating other Christians. Uh, Instead, it's won, as Paul said, because Christ has made us his own. Uh, All true Christians, all who believe uh, that Christ will save them, will get the prize. And all true Christians will strive towards that prize. But some who think they should get the prize won't. Uh, That is, non-Christians who think they're Christians because they never believed truly, and so they never put any effort in. Uh, And Jesus talks about that in, in Matthew 7, verses 24 to 27, which you can look up if you like. Um, But to sum up, here's what Paul is getting at. This is the whole thing in this verse is saying, when you're trying to work out what to do in any given situation, ask yourself, is this going to help me get to heaven uh, and and do what will help you? Uh, Not from a point of view of what you do will get you into heaven, uh, but what will help you to grow uh, so that you will be... uh, So, yeah, what will help... What will help you to grow? Uh, What does it look like in real life to do only things that will help you win a prize? Um, Well, to answer that, let's look at two examples that Paul gives to answer exactly that uh, in verses 25 to 27. Firstly, in verse 25, uh, Paul says, Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. If you've ever seen an athlete at any level, anyone who's ever trained towards some sort of athletic goal, this is pretty self-evident. They have to watch their food and their actions carefully so that they can keep up and increase their fitness, their ability to win the prize. Uh, It's a really hard life. But they tell you it's all worth it in the end. And because that's, of course, that's because they have a goal in mind, a prize. Paul uses the term wreath in verse 25 there, uh, which in those days which was kind of the equivalent of a modern-day trophy or medal. But if you've ever had a sports trophy, you'll know how quickly they go out of fashion and break. But like, like athletes, we have a prize that we're gunning towards, um, and like athletes, it takes hard work to reach that prize and a lot of, things, a lot of doing things that at the, at the time we might wish we didn't have to do. But unlike athletes, our prize will never break or rust or decay or even lose its coolness. We have an eternal prize, a heavenly prize. Uh, So we have even more reason to be self-controlled as we put our effort into racing towards that prize we talked about earlier. Paul gives the second example of himself, his own self-denial in verses 26 and 27. Uh, He says, I do not run aimlessly, I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others I myself should be disqualified. Did you get the impression that Paul has changed his metaphor halfway through verse 26? One minute we're talking about a foot race, the next a boxing match. But I don't think Paul's changed the metaphor there, I think he's actually adding to it. He hasn't swapped the running race for a boxing ring, Rather, he's wrestling as he runs, wrestling with his anti-biblical desires uh, for, the, for the ability to continue running the race of the Christian life. Imagine a race where the runner must fight off an attacker as he goes so that he'll progress further along the course. Paul's conflicting desires were wrestling against each other as he ran the race we've been talking about. 
at the same time, he both desired to continue the race and win the prize uh, and wanted to stop and indulge in sin. The only way to continue was to starve those sinful desires of what they craved, to beat them into submission, as he were, which is the image he uses there in verse 27. Uh, And it's the same for us. We must deny whatever sinful desires we have if if we are to continue on the race of the Christian life, however painful that may seem. Not by physically injuring ourselves, you realise. We're not called to to deny ourselves physically, uh, but we are called to deny sinful desires, sinful wants. Why? Why is it important to deny sin? Uh, Well, in answer to that question, Paul gave his his readers three warnings uh, against sinful attitudes and tactics in temptations to show why they're dangerous. And uh, we'll look at that in verses uh, 10 to the first half of, uh, sorry, verse 1 to the first half of verse 13 in chapter 10. Uh, Firstly, in verses 1 to 5, uh, Paul gives a warning against presumption. And presumption is one of those, this is why you need a dictionary when you read the Bible type words. Um, But really it is the best word to describe this first warning in verses 1 to 5. Let's read that again. Uh, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Presumption is basically thinking that God doesn't care if you sin uh, because you and he will get along just fine anyway. For instance, you, probably, you often hear people say these sorts of things, God loves me the same no matter what I do. Well, yes, that's true, but it doesn't necessarily mean what you think it means. Uh, Because our standing before God is based on what Christ has done, nothing will ever change that standing. That is definitely true. Um, God, though, is still lovingly displeased when we do the wrong thing, Uh, in much the same way that a parent is lovingly displeased when their young child plays with fire, for example. Consider the Israelites. God had personally and directly intervened in their slavery in Egypt. He personally led them through a long journey, including turning a sea into dry land. He had miraculously fed them, given them water, and spoken directly to them as they they travelled through the desert. He was just about to fulfil the promise he had given their ancestor Abraham as they prepared to take the land of Canaan. I mean, if anyone was tight with God, it was those Israelites, right? But then most of them got scared of some tall Canaanites and they refused to go any further. Uh, And so God sentenced all but two of the adults there that day to a slow and frustrating death wandering the desert just outside their new home. What's the moral of the story? No No matter how close to God you think you are, you still have to obey him. Uh, In verses 6 to 10, uh, Paul gives a warning against desiring evil. It's spelled out there in verse 6. We should not desire evil as they did. It's a warning against the mindset that says, okay, I'll do what God wants, but I really would prefer to do the wrong thing. And, you know, this sounds kind of straightforward uh, and maybe even a little irrelevant. But in this context, it's really very appropriate because if you try to fight temptation while wishing you didn't have to, I guarantee you'll lose. 
Again, the Israelites are a very painfully good example of this attitude. At virtually every opportunity on the long and arduous journey from Egypt to the Promised Land, the Israelites found something new to complain about or another god to worship uh, or some other kind of evil to immerse themselves in. Uh, And Paul listed a few examples there in verses 7 to 10, which we don't have time to go into. Uh, But again, the warning is clear. Don't desire the very thing you're you're trying to say no to. Fight temptation at the level of what you want, not what you do. Uh, Verses 11 to 13a is a warning against pride. Uh, Let's read that again. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. Uh, the, this final warning is against thinking you'll breeze through all the temptations the world has to offer. The mindset Paul's warning against here says, I don't need to put effort into this. I've got beating temptation sorted. Uh, and so Paul almost shouts out of the pages, stop thinking you're so good because you're not. These things are written in the Bible for your benefit, so get over yourself and listen. If you think you're standing strong, good on you, congratulations, but you still need to be on your guard. It doesn't take something extraordinary to push you over, Paul says. No temptation has overtaken you. That's not common to man. Everyone gets the same types of temptations as you, and on your own, you're just going to fail as easily as anyone else. You can't trust your own strength to get you through temptation. But up to this point, right, it seemed pretty bleak. This is a, it's been a hard, a hard message so far, uh, full of warnings and uh, commands. But if you can't get, te- get through temptation on your own, what can get you through it? What's, what's the point of even saying this? Well, at this point then, Paul gives four short but really profound pieces of encouragement uh, which will answer these questions, and they're all about God. Uh, In the second half of verse 13, Paul says, God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Excuse me. The the first encouragement there is the encouragement of God's faithfulness. God is faithful, Paul said. Trust God's faithfulness. He doesn't change no matter what the temptation is like. Everything about him, all his promises, including the following three pieces of encouragement, are always, always, always true. You can't trust your own abilities or your own spirituality or your, and certainly not your judgments about what's best, but you can trust God and trust his word because he is faithful. Isn't that a wonderful thing? The encouragement of God's sovereignty, secondly, He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, Paul said. Secondly, trust that God is sovereign over whatever goes on in the temptation. He's in control. He has the first, last and final say about what your temptation entails. Think of it like learning to swim or tread water in a relatively shallow pool with a swimming instructor. That instructor is in control of of all of what's going on and they won't let you drown. Uh, Yet the situation is designed to stretch you so that you will learn. 
Like the swimming instructor, God has orchestrated all of the prospects, all of the aspects of the temptation to stretch and teach you. Thirdly, the encouragement of God's provision. Uh, With the temptation, Paul says, he will also provide the way of escape. So thirdly, trust that God will provide the escape from the temptation that you need. This this way of escape may come in a number of forms. For Jesus in Matthew 4, it was using God's word as a reminder of the right response to the situation. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 13 and chapter 26, verse 41, Jesus talked about prayer as a guard against temptation. For Joseph in Genesis 39, it was physically running away. In other situations, it could be the help or accountability of other believers. Uh, David and Jonathan knew the power of this, uh, and most likely it will be a combination of all of those. The point is that God will supply it in some way or another. Uh, You just have to be looking to him and trusting him for it. And finally, the encouragement of God's desire. Uh, It says that God does all of this that you may be able to endure it. Finally, God, finally trust that God wants you to pass a test. He puts you in tempting circumstances to grow you, and his desire for you in that circumstance is that you pass the test. That's the reason why he gives the way out. It's the reason he's given so many instructions for how to pass it and persevere through it. God's not a, design, a divine social experimenter to see how you will react in certain situations, And he's definitely not a sadist who wants you to fail. God wants you to pass. It makes him glad when you do. So when when it all seems to be against you, take comfort in the fact that God is for you, not against you. So that's all of the ten things to remember when you're being tempted. The single command to live purposefully. The two examples, athletes displaying self-control and Paul denying his sinful desires. The three, warning against thinking it doesn't matter what you do, wanting what you shouldn't and thinking it's all too easy. And the four aspects of God's character, his faithfulness, sovereignty, provision and loving desire that will give you strength and encouragement to fight the temptation. So where do we go from here? Well, if you're a Christian, I hope it's uh, pretty obvious. Be like the examples, heed the warnings, take strength from those encouragements Uh, And through that, live your life purposefully, doing what God wants. Uh, And live in the joy and hope that you will receive the prize God has promised it. You will receive the prize. There's not a bar that you have to reach. You will receive it. If you're not a Christian, you could try doing that. But here's the thing. As it is, you're not even in the race to win the prize. Uh, you, You have no hope of winning it. You might as well enjoy your life now because you won't enjoy the next one. Or you could ask God for forgiveness and by his power start to change and live your life in such a way that you will win the prize. Jesus has made that possible. Stop wasting your time trying to enjoy this life which has no prize and start the race whose prize is eternal life. Because if you race to enjoy this life, you'll never win. But if by God's grace and strength you race to enjoy eternal life, you'll never lose. Uh, in closing, let me paraphrase John's words in, in 1 John chapter 2. Uh, I, I think it's a, a very helpful thing to say at the end of something like this, a sermon like this. Brothers and sisters, God doesn't want you to sin. I don't want you to sin. That's why I've said all of this. 
But if and when you do sin, remember that Jesus turns God's anger to forgiveness because instead of needing us to be punished, he was punished for what we've done. And that's true for everyone who trusts that Jesus does that. Praise God for that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God, uh, I want to thank you that uh, even though you have, you desire that we do the right thing, Lord, that uh, you have promised eternal life, not on the basis of what we've done, uh, but on the basis of what Christ has done. Uh, so God, I pray that um, we would live purposefully in, in thanks to that and in anticipation of the life uh, when we will be perfect, uh, when we will be like your son. Uh, so God, I do pray these things in Christ's name uh, and, be, and because it is, his, is by his power that we are able to do these things. Amen. Thanks, Nathan, for that word. Okay, in closing, let's just stand to sing now and uh, give thanks for what Christ has done through his blood. Let's sing, Nothing But the Blood of Jesus. <laughs>